Welcome to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Greenwood, Mississippi. We are a community of Christians that exists to make disciples of Jesus Christ and influence the Delta for the glory of God. More information about Westminster can be found at www.wpcgreenwood.org. Um, we're, we're continuing our <clears throat> Advent series, <clears throat> The Weary World Rejoices, and we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, um, verses 1 through 11 this morning. And so if you would, please turn with me there in your Bibles or follow along uh, with the verses printed in your bulletins. <clears throat> this is God's Word to us. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2. Verse 1, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So to the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, um, as we read this. It comes to my mind, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient to preach this, to receive it, um, Lord? And in and of ourselves, none of us are. But our sufficiency comes from you. And so we are here with faith that you've given us, and we're seeking understanding this morning. And so we ask you to help us, please. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> And so in the youth room, um, sometimes we watch this uh, apologetic series called Road Trip to Truth. Some of the youth, it's your favorite. Some may not like it so much, but uh, we watch it anyway. And um, one of the latest episodes, we were, it was on the meaning of Christmas. And the narrator, he asked this question. He said, you know, what is the greatest miracle in, in all of history? And he kind of, he brought out the big three, all right? as I like to think of them as the big three, he said, you know, is it, is it God speaking everything into existence out of nothing? I mean, that's amazing, right? The Lord spoke everything into existence. Um, is it the resurrection? That's amazing. Someone rising from the dead? Or is it the incarnation? What we're celebrating this month, Christmas. You know, these are all amazing events that none of us could ever do. And if we don't, you know, some of us may think one's greater than the other, but I think if you really, if you really analyze it, the incarnation is the greatest miracle ever. 
the person of God the Son is taking to himself a human nature without divesting himself of his divine nature. This is an amazing miracle that's detailed in our passage today. In our passage, many think that it was a hymn that was sung by the early Christians, a hymn to Christ and a hymn about Christ, his ultimate condescension, humiliation, and, and exaltation. And this morning, I want us to do two things as we work through this passage. I want us to marvel, and then I want us to model. We're going to marvel and model. And so with that being said, we're going to kind of reverse engineer it. We're going to start with verses 5 through 11. And at the end, we're going to come back and look at verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to break one of my preaching professor's cardinal rules. My points will not be symmetrical. We're going to, we're going to spend the majority of the time marveling in point 1. Okay, so let us marvel. Let us marvel at Jesus in His condescension, humiliation, and exaltation. In verses 5 and 6, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. And if you have the ESV, or I don't know what English translation you're using, that, that phrase, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Sometimes it has a footnote, or it may even be rendered in your text, and say, he did not count it a thing to be held on to for advantage. He did not count it a thing to be held on to for advantage. Why is this the case? Well, the case is because he has always been God. He has always been God the Son, the eternally begotten Son of the Father. So he doesn't need to go after this position. He already has it. But Stephen Doobie, he adds that Jesus' equality with God was not a thing uh, was not something that was to be exploited to avoid an act of self-giving love towards sinful humans. In other words, the Son of God, equal to the Father in the Spirit, possessor of all the divine attributes, all-knowing, all-powerful, self-sustaining, merciful, glorious, all the things we could continue adding. All the divine attributes. Jesus possesses all these. But he is not using his position to get out of the mission that was going to bring him great suffering, humiliation, and even death. And as I was thinking through this, I, I was thinking here in the South, and it may be this way all over the, you know, the world, but, but definitely here in the South, at least in, in my family circles, we love to use our position to get out of a less than ideal circumstance. I think it's specifically of a ticket. You know, you, you, you're driving somewhere, you get that ticket, and then all of a sudden somebody is on the phone trying to figure out if somebody knows a trooper or some police officer or judge in that county. Now, maybe not all of you do this, but I know a lot of people that do, and I've done it, right? We like to use our position, our connections. Maybe that highway patrolman, will, he'll tear it up, or maybe they won't show up to the court date. We like to use our position to get out of these things, right? Something that we've done. But think of Jesus. He never violated the law. Never. Always did what pleased the Father. And he comes down to earth as a man, not to rip up the tickets that we've accrued or to skip the court date, but he came down to actually have the tickets charged to his name to stand before the judge 
to receive the verdict and then to pay the penalty on our behalf. He waived his rights to come down and to save us. Then verse 7 says, he, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now this is one of the worst, I mean one of the worst, one of the most misinterpreted or misunderstood verses in all the Bible. And so I come to this verse with, with fear and trepidation. It's been misinterpreted throughout church history, and many have journeyed into the area of false teaching and heresy when dealing with this verse. There's no doubt that it's complex and mysterious. When we're dealing with the study of Jesus Christ, when we're dealing with Christology, like we are, we are coming into deep water, very deep water. We need the Lord's help. You know, many claim to believe in Jesus. Many claim to believe in Jesus. But, but our question, or my question is, who do you say that he is? What Jesus? Who is he? Are we talking about the Jesus that, that's described in God's word or a Jesus of our own making? Remember, there is no savior, savior, there is no salvation apart from the name of Jesus Christ. And so we want to get it right. Who is he? And so let's start with this verse and say uh, what's not being said. You know, some have taken verse 7 to mean that when God the Son, and I've heard it, I've heard it in a, a, a megachurch in Mississippi, that, that, that Jesus, when he took on flesh, that he emptied himself of his deity, that he laid his deity aside, and that is not true. He did not lay his deity aside. There are some that don't go that far, but they say that when he took on flesh, he emptied himself of some of his divine attributes like omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. But during the first 500 years of the early church, faithful pastors and teachers were combating the different Christological heresies, and they came together and they wrote confessions and creeds based on what the Bible is teaching to combat heresy and to correct false teaching. So Jesus here is not laying aside his deity or divine nature or any of his divine attributes. One of the most detailed creeds, if you want to go read it, uh, explaining the person of Christ is the Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian creed. It builds upon the Nicene Creed and it offers a series of denials about Christ when it teaches that the, nature of, the natures of Christ undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. And so it is not saying here in verse 7 that he laid aside his divine nature. But we see that he emptied by adding. He added to himself a human nature. But I wanted to look at one of the first implications here in this verse. Uh, for Christ to empty himself by taking to his person human nature, he must be preexistent. He's always been the Son of God, always there as he was the eternally begotten Son. And so we marvel at him as the preexistent one. The pre-existent son empties himself by adding, to, adding a human nature. The one person, Jesus, now has a divine nature and a human nature. And why did he have to take on a human nature? 
Because Adam, as our covenant head, the first human in the garden, sinned and brought the charge of sin against us, and all those that are born of him are born with a sinful nature. So the only way to right the ship is if a new covenant head for humanity fulfills the conditions of the covenant. This person must be a real human. Right? But one who is sinless. One who fulfills all the law of righteousness on our behalf. And so enter the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the God-man. And He now takes to Himself a true human nature with body, mind, and will. And He subjects Himself to weakness, to hunger, thirst, agony, heartache, temptation, to become our sympathetic high priest, as John read this morning in Hebrews. Think of this. The author of the law places himself under the law. The author of the law takes upon himself the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us as he's hung from the tree. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, when speaking of Jesus, he says that though he was rich, for our sakes he became poor that we might become rich. Think of this. The possessor of heaven and earth was born in a low condition and laid in a manger. The Lord of heaven and earth didn't have a place to rest his head in his earthly ministry. The maker of the waves had to borrow a boat when he was doing his teaching. The one who fashioned all the animals had to borrow a donkey to ride upon. The one who crafted the trees of the forest had to take a wooden cross and carry it to his place of execution. The author of life died and was laid in a tomb that was owned by another man. So marvel at Jesus and his condescension, his humiliation. William Hendrickson said, The sovereign master of all becomes a servant of all, while yet remaining the master. What a mystery. You know, can, I was thinking about old Matthew. I don't know if he's... Could you imagine the CEO of Milwaukee? And he might be here right now. I don't know. Could you imagine him coming down and clocking in for, for a base uh, hourly wage and then just getting in the line and just working along with, with everybody? You know, most of us, when, when we're in high positions, we like to lay hold of that high position because we like the benefits. You know, we want to avoid low pay. We want to avoid the pain of working in, uh, in the assembly line. And that's not even worth, it's a joke to even compare that to what Jesus did in the incarnation. But I have nothing else to compare it to. Like I, I, it, any, any analogy, any comparison falls short. In verse 8, we see that his condes condescension did not stop there, but he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The righteous one takes to himself a human nature and lives inside the womb of the Virgin Mary that he created and that he was sustaining at the same time. According to his divine nature, he's the eternal one. According to his human nature, he was born. According to his divine nature, he's the all-knowing. But according to his human nature, he must grow in knowledge. 
The fountain of wisdom must grow in wisdom. The great I am who is before Abraham had a 30th birthday thousands of years after Abraham had died. He studied and memorized the scriptures that, he, that came from his own divine inspiration. He was tempted by the devil that he created in the wilderness and he obeyed where his first creation, uh, created man, Adam, had failed. Think of his life and his ministry. He was reviled and hated and he did not revile back. He was slapped by the high priest, the earthly high priest, and he turned the other cheek. He was mocked and betrayed and eventually crucified. And we know or we've heard that crucifixion was the worst death, the worst way to die. Some have said when you were crucified, you died a thousand deaths. The cross was such a shameful way to die that the Roman philosopher Cicero said, let the very name of the cross be far removed, not only from the body of, the, of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. And it's most likely why the Apostle Paul was not crucified, because he was a Roman citizen. We don't know that for certain, but we know that it was despised. It was the worst way to go. And as, the miseries of the cross are unfathomable. Just the physical torment that he must have gone through, that was horrible and shameful. But the wrath of God is what caused Jesus to be conflicted with the terrors of death and the powers of darkness when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane as he awaited the cross. On the cross, he took our sin upon himself and he took the full weight of God's wrath. Ryan McGraw, he says, In that moment, while there was no suffering or separation in the Godhead, the God-man, the person of Jesus, was separated from the comfortable presence of God and endured grievous torments in the body and soul. Christ suffered according to his human nature, but as the divine human person. We killed Jesus through our sins. Satan killed him out of hatred, and God killed him in the place of his people. And I say all this, what, what, you know, what a wonderful Christmas message here. Think about all of this, what, what we're saying here. And, and we can go to Bible verse after Bible verse. I'm not making these things up. Um, to look at these things, think about them and marvel at this fact that he didn't have to do any of it. He didn't have to do one bit of it, but chose to do it. To redeem sinners, because it was the plan of God to redeem sinners. But God didn't need us. You know, and when we're thinking about this, we, we tend to fall in one of three ditches. If there could be three on a road here, well, just bear with me. You know, when it comes to contemplating the person and work of Christ, some of us, we only think about the benefits of Christ when it comes to justification um, being made right with God or sanctification, growing in holiness or glorification, all these big fancy words. Sometimes we only think of those things, but we never meditate on his person. Who is he? And then some of us, we think far too highly of ourselves. I was talking with, I think it was in our men's group on Thursday. That's a plug. Come on. If you're a man, come on. Young and old, come on. Um, 
But we were talking about this. Some of us think far too highly of ourselves. We think that we're a real catch, you know, for God. That God, He's lucky to have us on the team. I mean, look at us here. We're taking time away from Sunday, fun day to be at worship. Look at us. You know, some of us tend to think far too highly of ourselves. Or we fall into this ditch. We think that this, this couldn't possibly be true. That he, he couldn't possibly have done this for me. Or this just you know, didn't happen. You know, maybe we think you know, this is for others, but we're too sinful. We're such failures. And, and I'm here to tell you yes and more than we know. But that attitude is really just false humility and it makes, out, it makes God out to be a liar. Jesus Christ said he came to seek and to save the lost. And you're going to say that he didn't? Isaiah says, turn to the Lord all the ends of the earth and be saved. Come eat and drink, buy without money and without price. And you say that's not true? Or Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. And so I'm just here to tell you, he said it. Mark it down. Go to him by faith. Look at what the great links, or look at the great links that the Lord has gone to save sinners like you and I. And then in verses 9 through 11, we see his exaltation. The Son was sent by the Father to take on flesh, and through his human nature, he was filled with and led by the Holy Spirit. He humbled himself, and then he was exalted to the highest place. The verb here that's translated exalted, the, the, it's, it's, it's only used one time in all the Bible. Now you may see the English word exalted in other places, but the word behind this word here, it's only used once. It means super exalted. In his pre-incarnate state, Jesus was there with the Father and the Spirit and all their glory. But here, it's the first time that a man, someone with a human nature had passed through the heavenlies and then was seated at the right hand of God the Father as the God-man. The purpose of his exaltation is that he is to be worshipped by all. And we see in the text that everyone will bow the knee to, to King Jesus. The unfallen angels and redeemed humanity here in the church, we will praise the Lord in that day. We will bow the knee gladly. Some will do it willfully with pleasure and others will do it. They will be forced to bow the knee and they will hate every second of it. But you mark it down. In that day, there will only be one man standing and that is the Lord uh, Christ Jesus. One person standing on that day of his return. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we're going to end here with with marveling at, at the person of Christ and his work on the behalf of sinners. Now let's let's look at this attitude uh, to model. Okay, and so of course we're not we're, we, Paul in in the first four verses. He's not telling the people, and he's not telling us that we need to try to model the atonement. No one in here can atone for anyone else. That great redemptive act is non-repeatable. But Paul wanted to rehash all these great truths about Jesus and the example of Christ and his humiliation to motivate the church to have the same mind among themselves. 
See, the Christian, we are united to Christ by faith. His righteousness credited to us. Our sins have been paid for. We have died with Him and we have been raised with Him. Spiritually speaking, we are united to Him. But we still live on this earth with one another. And we get on each other's nerves. We're aliens and exiles in a foreign land. But the church is a kingdom outpost. That's what we're called. We are called the land of the living. We're not just waiting on that day to be in the land of the living. You are, if you are in Christ, we are the land of the living. That is an amazing thing. And even though all these things are true, we tend to fall back into divisions and selfishness and conceit. Often prideful. And we look out only for our own interest and not the interest of others. And Paul is telling us today that this ought not be so. Look at the example of Christ. Look what he did. Look at what Christ has done. Imagine if he had only been looking out for himself and not considered you in your sinful and helpless and hopeless state. If anyone had the right to pull rank and to back out or to, to, to not do something, it would be Jesus. And say, forget y'all. But we see throughout his ministry the downward movement, the going lower and lower, the touching of lepers and healing of lepers, the washing of the feet of the disciples, even the one that would betray him. And really all of them turned away for a point, but I'm speaking of Judas there. <clears throat> Look at his downward movement, going lower. And we, the church, we can be over here holding grudges, attacking one another with our words, assuming the worst about one another, hoping for evil to befall another, disrupting the peace and the purity of the church. And this ought not be so. It is a blemish on the church community to a watching world. We're called a city on a hill, a lamp on a nightstand. We're salt and light. And so let's model Christ's mindset and his heart by being of one mind. Let's get our minds firmly fixed on Christ, the humility of Jesus, and let's marvel at his person and his great redemptive acts on our behalf. We have been, as Paul says, he's asking, he says, if there's been any encouragement. I mean, the point is, there has been. Think about it. You have been encouraged in Christ. You have been comforted in the Lord because He has considered us more than He considered His position. May we consider others more than we consider our own. Let us seek, seek out ways to outdo one another in showing honor to one another. Modeling the attitude of Christ when he went to the cross with you on his mind. When from the cross he has his mother and John on his mind. And then right before his death, he has the people who were actually killing him on his mind. He says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You want to talk about someone who had others on his mind and seeking to do good for them at the hurt of his person. It's Jesus. There's never been a greater act of humility, love, justice, mercy, grace than what took place some 2,000 years ago. And so may we keep our eyes firmly fixed upon him 
And as we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, we are being transformed into that same image. He will conform us into his image as we behold his glory. So let us pray. Um, Lord, thank you um, for this reminder. Thank you for what you've done for us. Um, It's hard to even put into words. Uh, We can't fully grasp it, Lord. We can't comprehend it, but may we apprehend just, just a glimpse of it. And may that change us from the inside out by your Spirit. Because as I say these things, Lord, I fall into every ditch that I just named. And if it weren't for you holding me, Lord, I, I, I would have let go long ago. And so we praise you this morning for your salvation and for your holding on to us and your humiliation and condescension and in your exaltation. And so help us to continue worshiping in spirit and in truth. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, Richard Owens here. I just wanted to take a second to say thank you for listening to the podcast of Westminster Presbyterian Church. Our prayer is that the Lord would use this message to encourage you in the gospel and that you would find Jesus to be more beautiful than you ever, ever imagined. If you'd like to find out more about who Jesus is or more about our church, I invite you to visit our website at wpcgreenwood.org. God bless.